In the world of Protestant and Reformed churches, this particular Sunday is designated as Reformation Sunday. This is because of its close proximity to the anniversary of Martin Luther's posting of the 95 protest or thesis um, against the Roman church in his time, at the, nailed them to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany on October 31st, 1517. The heart of the Reformation was the revival of the glory of God through the rediscovery of the authority and the sufficiency of God's holy word. Jesus Christ became clear again through a refreshed focus on the Scriptures in the way of salvation through faith alone in Christ. This ignited a new era of gospel spread and transformation. We are direct beneficiaries, these 500 years later, of the Reformation. It has been a Redeemer tradition to have a guest preacher on Reformation Sunday. This year is no different. I'm very pleased to introduce you to Dr. Jason Dusing as this year's preacher. Dr. Dusing serves as the Provost, Senior Vice President, and Professor of Historical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary here in Kansas City. Dr. Dusing earned a PhD in Historical Theology from Southwestern Seminary, an MDiv from Southeastern Seminary, and a BA from Texas A&M University. Starting some 10 years ago under the able leadership of the newly appointed president, Jason Allen, the Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary underwent one of the most notable transformations in modern American evangelical history. It's fair to say that this transformation has been largely prompted by a commitment to Reformation theology. I think the wisest leadership decision Jason Allen made to assure this reformational move, this transformation, was to hire Jason Dusing as the vice president and provost for the seminary. Luther had Melanchthon, Calvin had Beza, Allen has Dusing. Dr. Dusing has been a main reason that Midwestern Baptist Seminary has become such a major contributor, not only to the large Baptist world, but also the whole world of evangelical and even Reformed Christianity. In fact, on its current reformational trajectory, I am hopeful that Midwestern will become Midwestern Presbyterian Theological Seminary in the next 10 years. One could wish. Jason is married to Kaylee, and they have four children. He is also the son of Greg and Cynthia Dusing, who are recent new members here at Redeemer. I know that you will be blessed by Dr. Dusing's very capable ministry of the Word. Jason, welcome to Redeemer. Thank you, brother. Well, a day like Reformation Sunday gives us an opportunity to celebrate and learn more about what many, myself included, consider the greatest revival among God's people in history since the start of the church in Acts chapter 2. And any discussion about the start of the Reformation cannot adequately take place without also discussing the leading reformer, Martin Luther. For while Luther was born in 1483, he started his protest against Roman Catholic theological and political corruption on October 31st, 1517, just over 500 years ago. So to do that today, I'd like to look at a pivotal text used in Luther's conversion to Christ and what helped him to see the doctrine of faith alone. So listen as I read Romans chapter 1, 
verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's bow together. Father, we're thankful to gather today, your people. Pray that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit, direct us to exalt the name of Christ and to live for your glory. I pray this through Christ. Amen. On a sultry day in July in the year 1505, a lonely traveler was trudging over a parched road on the outskirts of the Saxon village of Stotterheim. He was a young man, short but sturdy, and wore the dress of a university student. As he approached the village, the sky became overcast. Suddenly there was a shower, then a crashing storm. A bolt of lightning rived the gloom and knocked the man to the ground. Struggling to rise, he cried in terror, Saint Anne, help me, I will become a monk. The man who thus called upon a saint was later to repudiate the cult of saints. He who vowed to become a monk was later to renounce monasticism. A loyal son of the Catholic Church, he was later to shatter the structure of medieval Catholicism. A devoted servant of the Pope, he was later to identify the Pope's with Antichrist. For this young man was Martin Luther. And so begins the wonderful biography, Here I Stand, by the Yale professor Roland Baton. Another historical uh, professor, Timothy George, helps us to understand Luther's significance when he refers to him as the all-illuminating sun, which follows daybreak at the end of the middle, or dark ages. Luther as the sun, shining into a dark era of theological, political corruption. Indeed, from this day until now, the figure of Luther has been upheld and also vilified. On the one hand, entire church traditions and schools have been named for him. In most theological libraries, there are more books on Luther than any other human other than Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, books have been burned, and his name is seen as synonymous with disgrace and division. Yet 505 years later, Luther cannot and should not be ignored. So given the time and opportunity we have, I want to draw attention to Luther's life and the Reformation, yes, for it was remarkable and world-changing, but also to see the biblical truth that changed Luther's life, and especially his heart, and thereby the heart of the Reformation itself. For it would be a shame to realize the significance of the Reformation, but miss the core of what made this movement so powerful. So here's how I plan to receive. First, we'll look at Romans 1, 16 and 17 and biblical exposition. Then we'll, cover, uh, we'll color in that with historical and theological context, specifically how this text was first used in the conversion of Martin Luther, using this event in his life as a window of sorts to allow us to look back on the Reformation. And then finally, third, we will give some application few, through a few concluding statements to help round out our understanding of this doctrine for the 21st century. So first, biblical exposition. While we'll focus on verse 17 of Romans chapter 1, it's important to consider briefly verse 16. For verse 16 states the general theme of the gospel, and verse 17 explains or unpacks this theme further. You can see this in Paul's use of the word for. He does it twice, each at the start of each verse. 
So in verse 16, Paul expresses negatively why he is not ashamed of the gospel. First, he's not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is good news. While the gospel will always be offensive in this world, it is good, and it is good news, and Paul names it as such. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is from God's power, second. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the gospel is not an encouragement to self-effort, it is the announcement of what God has done in order to save us. The gospel is from God's power. Third, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is effective to save. Where all the religions of the world and false gospels are, are claimed are ineffective, the gospel truly saves. Fourth, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel saves everyone who believes. There is truly no hopeless person on the planet. There is truly no hopeless person on the planet. There's truly no hopeless person in this room. God, through the good news of the gospel, is able to save. And finally, number five, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is for all peoples, not just the Jews, but also the non-Jews, the Gentiles, the nations, all the peoples of the earth. In verse 17, Paul explains then positively what happens in the gospel. Number one, in the gospel there is revelation. Look back just above in the first two verses of Romans chapter 1, we see that the gospel was actually promised before in the Old Testament. Galatians 3 and verse 8 said the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. And here in verse 17, Paul quotes Habakkuk, an Old Testament book, chapter 2 and verse 4. So the idea of the gospel was not fully explained in the Old Testament. It was there in the Old Testament. And this stresses the importance of learning and knowing and reading the Old Testament. Remember, 1 Corinthians 10 says it was written for our instruction. So hearing sermons preached through the book of Genesis is a worthwhile and valuable thing for the gospel itself. In the gospel, there is revelation. In this, we see the gospel connecting back to the other core Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura, or scripture alone. The gospel comes to us through specific and special revelation. It has been revealed to us. It's not been revealed through the discovery in a cave of golden tablets. It's not been revealed through the making of some pilgrimage across oceans to foreign countries. No, the gospel of Jesus Christ was revealed to us at the right time by God Himself. The Old Testament looks forward to this by faith. We now look back to it by faith as well. Second, in verse 17, we see in the gospel God's righteousness is given. This, as we'll see, served as the stumbling block initially for Martin Luther, for it's easy to read this and to think that it is declaring merely that God is righteous, His attribute of righteousness, and thus distant and far removed from sinful humanity. Yet the meaning here is that God's righteousness is transferred and shared. It is given to sinful humanity. In short, how can a sinful man be made right before a perfect God? In Christ, God gives his own righteousness and thus meets all of his demands for perfection. Jesus Christ, living a perfect life and dying to provide a perfect sacrifice, did pay the perfect price. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus Christ sin so that in him he might, we might become the righteousness of God. And in Philippians 3.9, we see that that righteousness comes to us through what? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Third, in verse 17, in the gospel, faith alone is the vessel. 
How does God's righteousness by the very thing, the very thing that we need the most become ours? Well, it becomes ours through faith alone. Well, what then is faith? Faith in the New Testament is something that is given by God and is not present initially in every human being. And this is where some metaphors that we use for faith aren't entirely helpful. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones explains that by comparing faith to something like flying on an airplane is not faith. Oftentimes we talk about it takes faith to get in a steel tube and to be elevated 30,000 feet in the ground and then to land back down again. Lloyd-Jones says this is not faith, actually. It's trusting in mathematical probability and engineering ingenuity, but it's not faith. Faith in the New Testament also is not some lighter or easier path to the law. It's not a shortcut to the law. No, the law is fulfilled in Christ, and we meet the demands of the law through faith in Him. Faith is therefore technically also what is not required for salvation. That is in the sense that to be saved, what you actually need is more faith. Somehow you need to increase your faith or gain more faith. When we think of it in that way, that's actually making faith a work, something you're trying to do. As the Puritan Richard Sibb said in a sermon on faith, whereas Samson trusted and found strength in his locks of hair, Christians trust in and find strength not in their faith, but in Christ through the gift of faith. Faith is the opposite of legalism or trying to earn or work our way to God's righteousness. God's righteousness is given through faith alone. Faith technically is not what justifies us. Christ's righteousness is what makes us right, and that comes to us through faith. Through faith, we are made righteous, and that new righteousness produces fruit and good works. Good works follow faith alone in Christ. So faith in the New Testament is this picture of a bridge, the channel, a vessel through which we are saved. And you know this to be true because Ephesians 2.8, by grace we have been saved how? Through faith. At the end of verse 17, we see this phrase, from faith, for faith, which could be translated by faith to faith. That is, God reveals his righteousness by the faith he gives to our faith. In other words, by faith alone. Fourth, in verse 17, we see in the gospel, there are now a group of people called the righteous. Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith, or the righteous by faith shall live. And don't miss or blow by the glorious statement of truth here. There can, in fact, be human beings on this planet that are considered the righteous. Human beings, you and I, can't be justified, can be justified, cleared, pardoned, cleansed, forgiven, rescued, and made right before God. It is actually possible. Through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, His atoning sacrifice and substitution on our behalf, we can actually have God's righteousness. And this could be you today, if it's not already true for you. If you come into this room and you're not a Christian, you have not put, placed your faith in the life, death, and burial, and, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can be made righteous. But that comes through faith alone in Christ. It comes through the gift of God. So now having looked at verses 16 and 17 of Romans 1, let's return to Martin Luther and again using his life as a window of sorts to shed light on this doctrine, to bring this doctrine to 3D, as it were. We, mar we last left Martin Luther on that road in a rainstorm, crying out, saying he was going to become a monk. And we pick up there, seeing him headed to a mon monastery. Um, the storm drove him there, and it had the effect of startling him as a Roman Catholic to determine that monasticism was the only way to get closer to God. 
Indeed, in the 14th and 15th centuries were a time of great anxiety over death due to regular plagues, tremendous changes taking place throughout the European world economically and politically. And so before he was world-renowned, Luther was like most young men of his age, except really for two things unique to his personal disposition. He was given to periods of deep discouragement and disillusionment, illusionment naturally, and he was also far more religiously inclined than many of his peers. Those two things sort of created a perfect concoction inside of his mind and heart to lead him to this place of desiring the only conclusion he could draw would, would be to become a monk. It is thought that what Luther feared in the thunderstorm the most was not so much death, but rather not being prepared for death. He entered the monastery to make himself agreeable in the sight of God. But what he found in the monastery was actually not a shortcut of earning God's favor, in fact, quite the opposite. But as we'll see, he found a divine shortcut that took him straight to the Bible. As I said, monasticism was thought to be the closest one to, could get to God, and the monks would somehow receive, due to their works, preferential treatment in heaven. Luther's sensitive conscience uh, led him to give himself completely to the monastic way of life. He became so close to destroying his health with self-discipline. He thought that the stricter he was as a monk, maybe God would find favor in all of his efforts. He is aware of his sins, but yet tries to outrun them by finding God's favor through works. This only led to an increased awe of the holiness and justice of God, and therefore an increased uncertainty of how is it that he could be doing enough. Throughout his training, Luther is transferred to the town or village of Wittenberg, and he meets a superior monk, uh, a leader of him named Johann von Staupitz. And Staupitz is uh, well-educated, understanding, and learned man who was good at listening to all of Luther's fears and anxieties. And he guided Luther to study the scriptures all the more. Luther was believing that perhaps if I confess more and do penance more, my sins will be forgiven. But this led him through, even while he's studying the scriptures, to grow more and more frustrated with God. He, in fact, came to a point of finding that his deepest reaction to a God who required holiness that he could not obtain was a one of hate. Luther grew weary and angry at the paradox of what he perceived to be an unattainable standard of holiness. Staupitz directed Luther, what you need then is more education. Uh, you need to become a doctor of theology like I am and teach at the University of Wittenberg. And Staupitz recommended this to him because he knew that that path of study came with it uh, pastoral responsibilities. Staupitz is thinking that perhaps if Luther was, was set aside to focus on the doubts and needs of others, perhaps his own doubts would subside. This wandering path of Luther's labors is the shortcut that took him straight to the Bible. Staupitz led Luther to the Scriptures in study, and Luther would later say the Word actually did it all. Luther found in the Word the key to open the door to freedom, finally. Luther gave himself fully to the study of the Bible between 1513 and 1517. Luther had lectured on the Psalms, Romans, and Galatians. His study of the Psalms gave him the first glimmer of hope. When he came to Psalm 22 and the citation that Jesus would later quote, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Luther discovered that Christ himself had been subject to the agonies of desolation which he suffered. Christ himself had been forsaken as the most abject sinner, and this he did all for Luther's sake. 
The great discovery, though, came a few years later while Luther was lecturing through the letter to the Romans. And it's here that Luther discovers the heart of the Reformation, the doctrine of faith alone. Luther would later say, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression in Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean the justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Luther continues, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement, the just shall live by faith, in verse 17. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on new meaning, and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to paradise. Luther's breakthrough came through the understanding of the phrase in verse 17, the righteousness of God. Formerly, he saw it as God's own righteousness demonstrated in punishing unrighteous sinners. Now Luther saw it as a gift, a righteousness that can be transferred or imputed to a believer. Through this, Luther would articulate the heart of the Reformation, simply that faith alone through the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Faith, as we've talked about, and Luther would say, is something that, that is the idea of personal trust or grasping or taking hold of Christ. And the righteousness of God, as seen in Romans 1.17, Luther would articulate, is a gift God gives to those who trust Him for salvation. Believers are able to have a right standing before God. There is a group of people on this planet called the righteous, and they are righteous in Christ. But how exactly does this happen, Luther even wondered. Or to put it another way, what exactly was Luther putting his faith alone? In what exactly? Luther explains, God forgives and is, and is merciful to us because Christ, our advocate and priest, intercedes and sanctifies our beginning in righteousness. His righteousness, since it is without defect, serves us like an umbrella against the heat of God's wrath. It does not allow our beginning in righteousness to be condemned. Christ's righteousness, since it is without defect, serves us like an umbrella under the heat, against the heat of God's wrath. Jesus Christ is like an umbrella that shields us by His righteousness against the heat of God's wrath. Luther would see that the truth from Scripture that all humanity has sinned and broken God's law, Romans 3.23. God's wrath is just, therefore, in His holiness, He has a settled opposition to evil. Simply, He is good, and therefore, He must oppose and punish evil, all evil, all humans who are evil, Romans 3.26. Yet, we see throughout Scripture that God is merciful and slow to anger, slow to execute this wrath, Exodus 34.6. And at the right time, while we were still sinners, Christ came, lived a perfect life, fulfilling and keeping the law, was, to put, to was put to death and rose again, Romans 5.8. So in this sacrifice, Hebrews 9 tells us that Christ entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, 
nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The Reformation doctrine of faith alone really is an answer to a question. That question is, what must I do to be saved? And now Luther found the answer. Luther found the doctrine of faith alone in Jesus Christ, and this would become the heart of the Reformation. But it's important to see that this is more than something Luther came to know with his mind. It was something and someone that lived in his heart. Luther says, discovering the meanings of Romans 17, you may remember just a moment ago, it's like he had gone through a gate into paradise is the way he describes it. He experiences this idea of justification by faith alone. That phrase, a gate into paradise, is a wonderful word picture. And if you'll forgive just a personal aside, the way I like to illustrate this is to tell you a little bit about myself. My entire life, I have loved the game of baseball. And since I knew what the World Series was at about the age of four years old, I've been particularly fond of the New York Yankees. Uh, not entirely popular all the way in my family, but such as it is. Yet even though uh, we lived in the state of New Jersey during the fourth and fifth grade, it wasn't until the eighth grade that I actually saw Yankee Stadium, the old Yankee Stadium, for the first time. And I can remember even now, clearly, that day walking into the stands of Yankee Stadium for the first time. I walked in through the first base side and through a tunnel and came out and I saw this field of green looking out below me, uh, right there in front of me. And at first base was Don Mattingly taking ground balls, and to the left was home plate. And I remember being caught or really arrested at looking at home plate and realizing, and it hit me, that on that very spot in that stadium once stood every great Yankee, from Ruth to DiMaggio to Gehrig to Mantle and to Berra. I had been a fan of the Yankees for many years, but there was nothing like seeing Yankee Stadium for myself. It was even more real. It was like someone had opened a gate to paradise, or at least an enclosed garden of sorts. This times a million is what Luther is experiencing. Of course, for those of you in Christ, you don't even need me to explain this to you. You know exactly what Luther is describing when he realizes that Christ's righteousness can become his own. It is like a gate opened into paradise. Well, these changes led Luther to write and to share his writings in the hopes at this point that he could, within the Roman Catholic Church, draw attention to his discovery. And shortly after these years, nothing really happened. So on October 31st, 1517, Luther posted on the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church a set of propositions that opposed the practice of the church selling indulgences, which were simply documents they would sell to the people that were guaranteeing them eternal benefits. To Luther's surprise, his 95 theses were soon translated into German, and, and within weeks they were reproduced and read widely. In two weeks' time, they were known throughout Germany, and in a month throughout Europe. Luther was thrust into defending the need for a gospel reformation in the church, and as he shared his own personal reformation with those around him, the recovered gospel of faith alone developed into something like a fully operational death star that imploded the sacramental system of medieval Catholicism. For a thousand years at this time, there was the Roman Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire. The Reformation led to the fracturing of the former and the complete disillusion of the latter. And it all began with the discovery of the doctrine of faith alone, the heart of the Reformation. 
Well, to talk about Luther, it's right to also mention some of his shortcomings. Luther pursued the freedom he found in Christ in every area of life. Well known for his candid wit and courageous zeal, Luther's gregariousness at times would get ahead of his better judgment. He was not a perfect human being by any means. In his later years, as one example, Luther regrettably advocated the deportation of all Jews based on their rejection of Christ the Messiah. For reasons such as these blind spots and a common understanding of a shared sinful nature, the Protestant tradition has long abandoned the recognition of canonized sainthood. We do not worship or pray to Martin Luther. Martin Luther, for all of his pioneering gifts to the history of Christianity, the recovery of the gospel of free grace, and the elevation of the sufficiency of the Word of God, remains still, till his death, a sinful man. However, herein lies the best example of the graciousness of God that Luther proclaimed. A man once enslaved in sin received by faith the free gift of God's own righteousness. So in conclusion, a few comments about the doctrine of faith alone, the heart of the Reformation. We've, seen, we've come to see that the doctrine at the heart of the Reformation is important to know. Salvation in Christ by faith alone turns out to be the most important doctrine to lay a foundation not only for the Reformation but for our own lives. But it also is an incredible foundation to establish a burden for sharing the gospel. It's a doctrine to know, but it is also a doctrine to share. For an understanding that on the cross Jesus took the wrath of God that I deserved, Romans 5.9, and averted it for me, Romans 3.25, so I could have his righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5.21, led to an understanding that it, he also averted it for the sins of the world, 1 John 2. And that righteousness is available for all who repent and believe, Philippians 3.9, and place their faith in him alone, Romans 3.28. So it's a doctrine to know, but it's also a doctrine to share. First, it's a doctrine, it's a reminder to share the gospel with yourself, Remind yourself anew, even today, of the love of God that provided the sacrifice of His Son to give you that umbrella of His righteousness. There's a group of people on this planet called the righteous, and if you are in Christ, you are among their number. You are shielded by the umbrella of Jesus Christ, covered by His blood. When God looks at you, He sees Christ. He did that for you. We should share this doctrine first with ourselves. Second, it's a reminder to share the gospel with others. If your life has been transformed by the gift of salvation, by faith alone in Christ, so that you've been made righteous before God, you have received the very thing that every human being on the planet needs. Every human being that God brings into your life, He brings for a purpose, and all those human beings need the righteousness of God to be saved. If your life has been changed, tell them. As you go to work, as you go around the world, tell them and make disciples of them. For as hard as it might be to believe that God can change some lives, as we conclude, it's important for us to remember the hymn, His blood can make the phallus clean. By faith alone, His blood availed for me. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Father God, we rejoice and delight today and worship You for these truths, that as You look at us, You see the perfect righteousness of Christ forgiven by the just sacrifice that he gave, able to walk in the newness of life. I pray by these words you are, it would empower us to do that anew, even today. In Jesus' name, amen.